0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Diplomatic History Channel here at New Books Network. I'm your host, Grant Golub. I'm an Ernest May Fellow in History and Policy uh, at the Harvard Kennedy School and a PhD candidate uh, in International History at the London School of Economics. Uh, Today on the podcast, we're going to be looking at um, a really interesting book called U.S. Egypt Diplomacy under Johnson, Nasser, Comer, and the Limits of Personal Diplomacy, and what this book really does is it's digging into um, a really important turning point in a, in a crucial bilateral relationship, that being the U.S. Egypt one um, in the uh, in the 1960s when the when the uh, Arab Cold War, the Middle Eastern Cold War, is really entering a new phase. And so, to talk about the book, I'm joined um, by. Its author, uh, Dr. Gabriel Glickman, who has his PhD from King's College London, um, and he is a historian of international relations. He's currently working on his second project, um, which is a history of the post-1945 order. So, Gabriel, great to have you on the pod. Thanks for coming.
1: Thanks, Grant. It's uh, great to be here.
0: So I, I think a great place for us to start is, you know, this is a really specific um subject uh, for uh, a book. And I was wondering if you could tell us what got you really interested um, in, in this project to begin with.
1: Uh, that's actually a, a very astute uh, comment about the topic. It is super specific, and I didn't come to it that way. Um, I suspect like most book projects, it kind of came out of another project that just kind of got narrowed down and narrowed down. Um, I started writing about the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. And uh, I actually wrote a full book on it. And I wrote about the uh, historiography of that war. And um, I was curious to see how people perceive that war uh, over the decades. So what I did is I read chronologically every book that had been written, well, that I could get my hands on, and every article that had been written um, about that war. And I sort of lined it up chronologically to see how the arguments changed over time. And I got really interested in how people perceived the origin of that war. And so I kind of went from writing about the entirety of the 1967 Arab-Israeli war to looking at how people saw the origins. And as the decades moved on, uh, you had some people that would blame uh, Egypt for the war, you'd have some people that would blame uh, Israel for the war, you'd have some people that would say it was uh, outside conditions and uh, it was an accidental war. You just had all these different arguments. and. I started doing uh, some archival research as I was going through the historiography, looking at what other historians were saying. And as I was doing it, one of the chapters covered uh, sort of the American side in the run-up to the war. And I saw that there was this conflict between the United States uh, and Egypt that seemed to spiral right before that war broke out. And I became really interested in that. And the more I looked at uh, uh, Nasser's speeches, uh, the more I saw that he was referring to the United States in speeches that were days before the war. Uh, Egyptian radio stations were referring to the United States and saying that they were, not gearing themselves towards Israel, but actually the United States. And I was surprised to see that because in all the historiography that I had read, uh, hardly anyone referred to uh, this fact, this this kind of factor uh, of a conflict between Nasser and the United States. And so from there, I started investigating it further and I kept going further and further back in time Um, And that's where I ended up with this book project. And it got very specific from a much broader one.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that that is really fascinating. Um, You know, I think you're right that a lot of book projects, you know, start from something much broader um, as it was with yours and, you know, tend to get narrowed down over time. You know, I also think that it's, you made a really interesting point about um, Nasser's speeches. And I, I have found that for some reason, um, scholars tend to ignore sometimes the public rhetoric that um, you know g- world leaders and politicians or or whoever actually are are putting out there because they think oh you know that's that's already there for public consumption it's you know in the hierarchy of of sources. Um, You know things that are that are private are going to be you know more earnest or are going to be more uh, legitimate, Um, but sometimes the answers or or part of the answers are actually right there in front of you um, all along. So I think that's really interesting. Um, So sort of zeroing out a little bit before we really get into the into the heart or and the meat of your book, can you give us a a thirty thousand foot overview of the? Um, U.S. Egypt relationship um, before the 1960s, which is really where your book focuses on, and how um, how that relationship had developed during the Eisenhower presidency. Um, you know, many of our listeners are probably going to be familiar with the with the Suez Crisis, but if you could really sort of delve into that for us, I think that'd be a great place to start.
1: Yeah, um, so. The relationship uh, between the U.S. Uh, and Nasser uh, starts out pretty close in the 1950s, um, and a great book on that is uh, uh, by Miles Copeland, uh, who was in the CIA and kind of a uh, funny aside because I'm a jazz drummer. He's the father of uh, Stuart Copeland, who's the drummer for the uh, the Police. And uh, Miles Copeland uh, talks about how it's something crazy, like he had an office down from Nasser and they, you know, are trying to sort of guide him and um, uh, help him become uh, this uh, sort of confident independent leader of Egypt. And uh, things just go downhill from there. Uh, Of course, you've got the the Suez War, but you've also got – uh, issues with uh, Lebanon uh, and the rest of the Middle East, uh, with uh, uh, Nasser sort of stirring up a uh, conflict with other Arab nations. And the United States is sort of trying to navigate uh, the 1950s with uh, reading Nasser for the Uh, independent, sovereign leader that he is while also trying to figure out their place in the Middle East. And the conclusion that the Eisenhower comes to is that Nasser is uh, at odds with the U.S. position in the Middle East. And Eisenhower himself just kind of completely loses interest in Nasser uh, as his uh, administration comes to an end, and U.S.-Egypt relations are almost non-existent, when Kennedy comes in, um, and that's that's where Comer really enters the picture. Is at this low point where communications are kind of non-existent and a grand strategy uh, is non-existent, and the. Uh, perceptions of Nasser are well you know the nickname for him uh, was uh, something like Hitler on the Nile right that kind of gives a big uh, clue as to how Nasser was perceived in Washington DC
0: so how if at all I mean we'll get to comer in a second but sort of moving into the Kennedy administration is there um, you know an initial you um, View that U.S. Egypt relations need to be reset. Is there sort of a different view of the Middle East, um, coming into the Kennedy, uh, presidency than than the one that his predecessor had? I mean, how is that looking as we as we change presidents?
1: Well, that's that's what I found so interesting. um, Is uh, it's almost non-existent. Uh, You know, we write about the Kennedy administration. We write about the Johnson administration. And I'm trying to f- figure out what Kennedy's views are on Egypt, and it's 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 almost non-existent. I mean, it's, there's there's not a lot. He's not talking about Nasser in his campaign speeches. He's not talking about uh, the Middle East. I mean, his his speeches, you know, the idea of a new frontier, Americans rolling up their shirt sleeves and um, put in the work and sort of rehabilitates the American image in the world kind of gives a clue as to where he might go with the middle east but um it's really comer who drives a reevaluation and i think that's what surprised me so much um if you listen to comer and, and you know, comer's a very colorful character you know so it's 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 definitely possible that he skews things uh, very much so but if you listen to comer no one's really thinking about nasser until he comes in And he says, hey, guys, what about Nasser? And he he tells a story. He says that's basically how he interviewed uh, for the Kennedy administration. That was his big idea. You know, what if we reset relations with Gamal Abdel Nasser? And um, what if we kind of fit that into Kennedy's uh, broader ambitions for America and the world?
0: So, okay, let's, let's get to, to Bob Comer, Robert Comer, Robert Comer, who's really one of the main characters, if not the main character of your, of your book. So who is Robert Comer? What's his background um, before he becomes uh, a member of the Kennedy administration?
1: Yeah, he's, he's got a funny background. Um, he's, he's from Missouri. And he would say the fact that he was from Missouri uh, and not sort of on the eastern seaboard uh, endeared him in Johnson's eyes because Johnson uh, really mistrusted uh, Kennedy's officials, a lot of them who came from the Ivory Tower and sort of came from, you know, what Johnson's considered East Coast establishments and very different from his Texan background. But uh, for some reason, apparently Bob Comer's Missouri background uh, endeared him to Johnson, but uh, Comer was also educated uh, at Harvard, right? So Comer's, um, you know, very much a part of that world that that Johnson sort of mistrusted. Um, but the the way that Comer comes into this um, is he is uh, he works for the CIA. Um, he's he's uh, I think one of the sort of early people to join the CIA. And uh, he comes from it uh, from uh, a group of people that escapes me from some sort of military academy. And a group of them kind of went to, uh, uh, into the CIA together. But Comer was sent as a CIA uh, liaison to uh, NSC meetings during the Eisenhower administration. And so he's uh, sort of a fly on the wall and kind of knows a lot of the ins and outs. And so that puts him in a unique position. For the Kennedy administration, he says something like, they chose him, or he advertised himself, because they needed someone who knew where all the bodies were. Um, It kind of gives, you know, an overview of what Comer's sense of humor is like, a very funny guy, especially in his memos. Um, but that's that's his uh, background, and uh, that's how he comes into the National Security Council. No, why is he involved in, in, in Middle Eastern affairs? Why is he given so much leeway with um, the Middle East? It was basically his ambition, and that's kind of the main idea of the book, is that Comer's ambition created a policy— and kept it running as, as it everything was trying to drive it into the ground. And it died after Comer left the scene. But it was his ambition that moved him in from the CIA liaison position um, into the National Security Council. And it was sort of big strategic ideas, big picture ideas that he tried to fit into Kennedy's even bigger ideas.
0: Yeah that's really fascinating that he really got his start in the US foreign policy community in the you know CIA's infancy I think you know like many f- figures in mid 20th century American diplomacy and foreign affairs you know a lot of these um men you know had served during World War II or members you know were members of the Office of Strategic Services, which is in a lot of ways the, the World War II predecessor of the of the Central Intelligence Agency and then they you know go on to other roles or some of them sort of you know transitioned into the CIA. Um, I find that 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 sort of part of their biography happens over and over again with so many different uh, figures um, but I find that that is often, um, sort of just kind of talked about Breezley or sort of in passing. But you know, it's it's a really, I think, important point about where these figures are coming from, because it really shapes their worldview of a lot of really key issues, especially as they rise up uh, within the national security uh, bureaucracy. You know, people like uh, Robert Comer. Um, what? So, why is Comer so interested? In Middle Eastern diplomacy, and specifically Egypt. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you know part of his interview to join the NSC staff, the National Security Council, was the sort of idea of, of resetting U.S.-Egyptian relations. Why is he so interested in that?
1: Um, that's a great question. And in terms of personal background, I, I didn't see any clues as to why he might go into that. And you know, afterwards. Uh, He does spend a little bit of time in the region. Uh, You know, he he becomes uh, an ambassador in in Turkey um, uh, a little bit later on in his career. But my best understanding of why Comer fits into this is he saw opportunity and he just kind of ran with it. Um, he really aligned with Kennedy's worldview on the Middle East and, you know, what they called the third world in general, or sort of non-aligned countries, countries that weren't aligned with either, um, you know, the United States or the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And, you know, Kennedy had this big idea coming in uh, to office that, he would treat these leaders as uh, independent leaders and give them the respect uh, that they deserved and that he thought they deserved. And he would make it clear um, that you know he would be a sort of friendly partner to them. But at the same time, the driving, sort of motivating factor for that was to prevent any crises from occurring. And they called it, you know, preventative diplomacy. The idea was let's identify a hot spot, let's identify a difficult leader, and let's figure out ways that we can uh, prevent these difficult situations from brewing over and causing a war for the United States or something that would cause the United States to get involved in a way that it didn't want to get involved. Uh, it's a really uh, creative way to approach, approach um, uh, foreign affairs. And I think from Comer's perspective, he saw the Middle East and, and NASA in particular as uh, something that very much fit into that puzzle. And so he looked at the state of relations as, you know, stale and sort of dying as they were uh, under the transition from Eisenhower to Kennedy. And he said, uh, you know, you look at Nasser, he's uh, an engaging leader. He's a popular leader. Uh, He's an impactful speaker. Uh, He has an impact beyond his country. He's the leader of the most populous country, and uh, he's got grand ambitions. He's created uh, a union with Syria. You know, Egypt changed its name from you know from from, by United Arab Republic. Sort of this partnership with uh, Syria, which later fell apart, but Nasser still kept that name. Um, And Comer looked at all that, and he said, "We've." we've we've got to figure out a way to work with Nasser. We can't leave things on the burner and we've got to rehabilitate this uh, relationship. Um, And that's kind of um, where that started.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's clearly a lot of really important strategic reasons for the United States to try and improve its relationship with Egypt, you know, uh, for a lot of the reasons that you outlined um, you know, especially um, as, you know, it's control over the Suez Canal, right? And, they, you know, they had fought a whole war over that in 56. And uh, as the leader of the most populous country, you know, sort of uh, uh, in the Middle East, you know, sort of con- considered, uh, you know, the unofficial leader of the Arab world, um, you know, he can really be a key, um, you know, in, in trying to prevent Soviet influence in the Middle East, um, which was really an, an overriding, you know, American concern, at the time, so what were what were some of the ways um, that Comer thought about improving U.S. Egypt relations during the Kennedy presidency?
1: Yeah, um, so Comer's big idea was to give lots of aid to Egypt. Um, Egypt had, was having chronic food shortages. Uh, there was sort of mismanagements of, uh, of of farming areas, there was all sorts of irrigation projects and things going on that were changing uh, the agricultural landscape. There was uh, a famine uh, to go along with it, and Egypt was in need of wheat, and the United States had tons of it to spare. And so, uh, Comer's big idea was, you know, why don't we give um, food? Uh, to Nasser, why don't we help him feed his people under the uh, Food for Peace program, uh, which is called Public Law uh, 480. And so uh, you'll see it referred to in the book as PL 480, but it's also called uh, Food for Peace, sort of a program that was uh, uh, created a little bit before Comer's time. Um, And the idea was... um, If you could get Nasser focused on development, then maybe he wouldn't be so focused on uh, creating conflict in the Middle East. And, you know, Comer saw that Nasser was ambitious, you know, uh, and he saw uh, everyone knew that, you know, Nasser was uh, friendly with the Soviets. You know, when the United States pulled out funding for the Aswan Dam, uh, the Soviets famously uh, swooped in and sort of saved the day. And that was traumatic in Comer's eyes. And, you know, 10 years later, everyone's talking about Aswan Dam. In the middle of the 1960s, everyone's talking about Aswan Dam we can't let that happen let's get nasser focused on development and let's keep him from creating problems in the middle east for the united states and let's keep him from uh, ever taking uh, soviet aid like that again and sort of making the united states uh, look bad
0: mm. and so how does nasser respond to some of these early u.s on treaties you know the ones that comers really spearheading
1: um He very clearly understands it for what it is, and when I look through the early documents, um, you, the way you see Kennedy's officials talk about giving aid to Egypt, it's very um, idealistic, it's very optimistic. You know, let's help Nasser out, let's get Egypt on its feet. And when you look at how American officials write about it as relationships are crumbling, they start referring to it as a bribe. They start referring to it completely different um, at the end of the story. They say, we're bribing Nasser to be quiet and maybe we shouldn't be doing it. And so uh, Nasser clearly sees things in a similar way. But the way he thinks about it also changes as the story goes along. You know, he talks about... Uh, he's got a great relationship with Kennedy. He's very remorseful when when Kennedy dies. He really does seem to like Kennedy and have an affinity for him, and so he he goes along with this. I mean, and it's good for him. He's getting attention. Uh, he's getting personal letters from Kennedy. That's Kennedy's style of diplomacy. Uh, a lot of these letters are, are are written by Comer himself, and they're they're put in Kennedy's name. Um, but this this personal touch uh, is is uh, uh, valued by Nasser, and so he kind of goes along uh, with the game. Um, as things change, we can get into that a little bit later. But as things change in the middle of the story, um, Nasser starts to change his rhetoric about American aid and uh, refers to it as pressure, American pressure. And his rhetoric ebbs and flows as the story goes on. When he's upset with the United States, he talks about American pressure. When he's not upset, he doesn't refer to it. He, he will tell a sad story in a speech about how he thought he was going to get American aid and he might not be getting it. you know. And he does that because he wants to sort of you know, show the United States that he values their aid and he wants it when he thinks there's no chance of getting the aid he calls it American pressure and you know uh, at one point tells the American ambassador to drink from the sea which is a euphemism for for go to hell so it's, it's a real ebb and flow as the story goes on
0: and you know in in you know still thinking about the Kennedy administration I mean what is how are other US officials, interpreting or reacting to Comer's ideas and sort of these early efforts to try and repair or, or really rebuild, for that matter, the U.S.-Egypt relationship? I mean, is there support for, for Comer's efforts? Is there pushback? Is there skepticism? How do other officials in the Kennedy administration and within the broader national security bureaucracy think about um, what Comer's up to?
1: He has much more support in the Kennedy administration than he does from uh, the Johnson administration. Uh, the weight starts to turn from the transition to Johnson. But during the Kennedy administration, uh, Comer is uh, basically empowered by Kennedy. Uh, 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 McGeorge Bundy, uh, when talking about Comer, uh, you know, and McGeorge Bundy is, is the national security advisor, he's Comer's boss. Um, Bundy is empowered to run the National Security uh, Council as as he pleases, and the way Bundy runs it is he empowers uh, Comer and others to basically run their region. Uh, you know, Comer is in charge of the Near East, and that's his region, and that's kind of his baby, and. Not only does Bundy empower Comer to run things as he sees fit, but Kennedy also likes Comer's approach and will convene with Comer on a regular basis. Um, and I, I tried to insulate myself a little bit more in the Johnson administration than I did with the Kennedy administration. But when you look at the Kennedy documents, it's very clear that Comer's interacting with Kennedy. On a much more frequent basis than he does with Johnson, to the point where, when there's conflict in Yemen and Nasser's getting involved, Comer's giving regular briefings to Kennedy on this. And they start referring to it as Comer's War. Um, And he's acting like this kind of like school teacher, kind of giving everyone a rundown on what's happening and how they should handle it. And so, from that, you can tell he's really trusted with what's going on in the Middle East. But there's others in the um, uh, uh, in the administration who who don't agree, and they think that Comer's big idea uh, is basically t- to bribe Nasser, and that not only is that wrong, but um, it's going to backfire, and you know it's it's being weak, it's letting Nasser play the United States off the Soviets for aid and and win, and so that tension exists under the level during Kennedy. But Comer is just so empowered by Bundy and Kennedy that he's able to override all that. And he's given a lot, a lot of um, power for a a person of his position. Uh, I spoke to people who had his position in later administrations and I mean, I spoke to someone who had it in the administration after him, and they were shocked. They said, that's that's definitely not how the National Security Council worked when I was in it, and I was definitely not a, given that much leeway. So uh, Comer was in an unusual position. And because the transition to Johnson was obviously so unexpected, and there's this weird phase where everyone's trying to make the Johnson administration Kennedy part two, there's a weird time where Ken Comer is allowed to kind of continue doing these things and given a bit of leeway. But as the story progresses to the middle part, he starts to get pushback. And some of the people who give pushback are like uh, Secretary of State Dean Rusk, who um, is one of those people who doesn't seem quite as comfortable with Kennedy as he as he does with Johnson and is a little bit, Happier to be able to sort of put Comer in his place um, as time moves on in the Johnson administration. So while Kennedy, so while Comer is empowered, there's definitely a faction that's um, against his his big idea to turn NASA inwards.
0: Yeah, I mean that that's a really interesting point uh, there about Dean Rusk and you know some of the, sort of the the bureaucratic um, competition there. I think because. You know, I, I think that people often forget that, you know, Kennedy wanted to be his own secretary of state. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, he empowered uh, McGeorge Bundy and the National Security Council staff as a way of trying to maneuver around the State Department. And, you know, Dean Rusk was kind of, well, Kennedy, you know, had had, had trouble finding a secretary of state who, who um, you know, sort of fit his... His um, idea of of what the State Department should be up to, and, and basically Dean Rusk was like everyone's number two. Um, you know, he's like a guy who's not going to ruffle any feathers, and he's just going to kind of be there and do what you need him to do. Um, I actually I don't remember exactly who Kennedy's first choice was, but for for some reason he wasn't able to get him. Um, but you know, Dean Rusk was kind of like everyone. Kind of agreed, oh, you know, he's not going to bother. you. He's not going to bother anyone. You know, so that and, and so it's interesting, you know, now moving into the Johnson presidency, how those dynamics start to shift. So, you know, as Johnson takes over um, from Kennedy after Kennedy's assassination in, um, in uh, November 63, um, how is Johnson thinking about Comer's efforts and perhaps more broadly the U.S.-Egypt relationship? I mean, you sort of hinted already at some of the of some of the shifts. Um, but what are those exactly?
1: Well, the big shift is that um, there's a conflict going on in Yemen. Um, uh, there's, there's a revolution in, in Yemen, and uh, the leader who, who comes in, uh, Salal, is um, uh, appreciative of Nasser, admires Nasser, and Nasser gets involved in Yemen. And on the other side of that, um, Saudi Arabia Uh, does not like Nasser being so close on their doorstep, does not like him getting involved uh, in sort of their sphere. And so you've got a proxy war in Yemen where Nasser is supporting, uh, you know, his forces in Yemen and Saudi Arabia supporting theirs. And um, Comer is trying to stop that from, Uh, spilling over and causing um, a major war in the Middle East. That's Comer's uh, main objective during the Kennedy administration uh, and the Johnson administration is to keep a Middle East war off the president's plates. He sees Nasser as the the person who is most likely to start that war and the person he needs to most keep in line. So, as you can imagine, when conflict breaks out in Yemen, uh, Comer's big goal is let's freeze that conflict and keep it so that there's a stalemate and so that neither side gets one up on the other and neither side can drag the United States in. Why does he do that? Well, you know. Kennedy's approach to the Middle East was to kind of support everyone you know, which is impossible to do. It's like writing a book about the Middle East. You can't please everyone everyone, everyone no, no matter what you say about the Middle East more so than any other topic someone's going to get upset and yet, you know, Kennedy's uh, principle was let's be friends with everyone and Comer tried to fit Uh, Nasser relations with Nasser under that rubric. You know, let's be friends with Nasser and Israel at the same time. Let's be friends with Nasser and Saudi Arabia at the same time. And that's really difficult um, to do. And so Comer's in the middle of managing this very real war, right, that has the potential to spill over. And what's going to happen when it spills over? Well, all of the countries in the region are gonna choose a side. They're gonna choose Nasser. They're going to choose uh, the Saudis. And so, what is the United States gonna have to do? They're gonna have to choose a side, and then that's gonna put the United States in an awkward position because the Soviets, and it's it's gonna create, you know, Comer's worst nightmare. Well, to add to Comer's worst nightmare, he uses Kennedy. To sort of uh, calm Nasser down for a lot of uh, potential crises that could make this war much worse, he has, uh, you know, Kennedy write letters to Nasser explaining certain decisions, very carefully written. You know, hey Nasser, we're doing X, Y, and Z. Here's why we're doing it. We want you to know that we're going to be upfront with you. Communication is key. And so with Kennedy as the front of this relationship, even though it's Comer who's writing all this stuff and carefully guiding it, well, they're making a big push as Kennedy dies to get both sides to agree to a ceasefire. And so when Kennedy uh, is assassinated, it leaves this huge, huge hole in the middle of this uh, time when the Yemen war uh, is, is, is at a spillover, potential spillover point. So Johnson gets uh, briefed on the war in Yemen. It's actually one of the first things he's briefed about, uh, which I found kind of surprising because Johnson hardly spends any time on this stuff. Um, his, his attention, for one thing, he doesn't really care for Nasser. Uh, he doesn't want to deal with Nasser. He sees Nasser as a pain. But everyone explains to him there's this whole approach going on. You've got to do X, Y, and Z. And that's how the relationship starts. Johnson's basically told, you've got to do this. Otherwise, everything's going to sort of go to hell. And that's where Johnson comes into this relationship. And I think Johnson sort of resents this because as time goes on, he sort of wrestles control from Comer, uh, from Bundy, puts foreign policy a little bit more back into the State Department's shoes, and tries to sort of course correct from where Kennedy had sort of, you know, as you as you pointed out, tried to run foreign policy himself.
0: Right. So, you know, as Johnson really settles into the presidency, especially after he wins election in his own right, in a a landslide victory, um, you know, a crushing, crushing victory of Barry Goldwater in 1964. How does that how does that shift? I mean, I think you were really just starting to get into it. But how does that shift what Comer is up to with Egypt and um, sort of shift the overall foreign policy of the Johnson Presidency. I mean, naturally, Vietnam is is really becoming front and center, especially after Johnson's um, election victory in '64. How is that really sort of shifting the dynamics here?
1: Um, So, uh, Vietnam is is a uh, a a constant presence. Um, You know, I don't I don't really write about the war. I, I refer to it at times, but it's a constant presence. It's there because it's a constant presence for the administration and um, Johnson is not focused on the Middle East because he is in part focused on the Vietnam War, but he's also focused on his, uh, you know, domestic uh, initiatives. Uh, He's, he's focused on, uh, uh, on issues, uh, you know, like race relations and, the Middle East is what Comer calls a sideshow. He says it's a sideshow under Kennedy because Kennedy had bigger concerns. And it's a sideshow under Johnson because Johnson gets swept up with so many other issues. And that remains so. Um, but John, the, the election plays a really interesting role in Johnson's uh, interactions with the Middle East. And it plays a really interesting role Um because in the run-up to the election, you know, everyone is trying to keep things off of Johnson's plate. Every single, every single, almost every single memo is basically, we can't bring this in front of the big guy because he's got so many other concerns. Let's try to deal with this before it gets to him. Um, you know, they need him to do all sorts of things. Like they need him to meet a new ambassador. They had a really great ambassador, John uh, for for Comer's initiative, John Bedeau, who is fluent in Arabic, educated in Middle Eastern uh, affairs, who Nasser loves. Uh, they get along really well. Uh, when Kennedy dies, Bedeau single-handedly kind of keeps things going in Cairo, and he leaves the service, and they got to bring in a new guy. Um, And so there's all these things where they need Johnson to do things to sort of help Nasser see that he cares about Nasser. You know, he cares about this new ambassador and he's going to meet with the new ambassador. And, you know, and and it's important that he meets with the people who are going to be meeting with Nasser so that Nasser understands Johnson is is involved. But it's really hard for Johnson to do these things with the election and at the same time Johnson is very much concerned about electoral politics uh, in the United States, and Nasser is not popular. Uh, he has that that nickname, uh, Hitler on the Nile, and he's not popular on Capitol Hill, which becomes the most important part of the story after Johnson's election. Um, and so Johnson... Uh, can't really do much with Nasser before the election. And so after the election, his officials kind of tell Nasser's officials, hey, you know, after the election, we'll be able to do uh, a little bit more. We'll be able to help you out on on some of these issues you want help on. Uh, And what happens is after the election and after Johnson wins, like you said, he kind of comes into his own in terms of foreign policy. And he decides that he wants to have a more ambitious foreign policy that would involve giving foreign aid to countries who want it, who who are willing to work with the United States. And Nasser doesn't really fit into that picture. Um, I think I, I make an argument in the book that Johnson's very orthodox in the way that he approaches foreign affairs. Uh, He sees the United States as a great power, a sort of 19th century great power state. And in sort of that antiquated uh, terminology, he thinks that if you make a mistake, you've got to keep going that course. You can't change because you can't sort of look weak. Uh, And with a leader like Nasser, he thinks you can't really be flexible for the same reason because he thinks that if you change course which flexibility requires you're going to look weak you're going to look like you're giving in to a leader like uh Nasser who's obviously a much smaller state it looks like you're sort of at their mercy and that guides Johnson's approach versus 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 Kennedy's approach is you got to have a personal relationship with all leaders and you've got to have a flexible approach because Foreign affairs and crises are flexible. Uh, things pop up and you have to pivot. Just like John Lewis Gaddis points out in his book on Grand Strategy, you know, if you if you keep going the way you're going and don't change course, you're not gonna reach where you're going. And Johnson didn't really appreciate that. And so he's very orthodox in the way he approaches foreign policy. And NASA requires flexibility and definitely does not fit into that. Uh, worldview and so Johnson starts turning his attention towards India you know uh, which he has a remarkable foreign policy achievements in 66 where he kind of uh, uh, gives uh, India a major uh, aid package and he feels really good about it and he feels like uh, uh, India is is working on his terms and when he talks about nasser in the same light he's basically like, groans. You know, Nasser doesn't want to listen to anything we have to say, why should I work with him? And everyone says, well, he's going to cause problems for you in the Middle East. And Johnson basically says, I don't care. The other side of that, to circle back to the election question, you would think Johnson would feel a little bit more empowered to do whatever he needs to do after winning that election. But he's so afraid of ruining his foreign aid initiatives and his, his domestic policy initiatives that he doesn't want to use up his capital on Capitol Hill uh, on Nasser, and um, that makes it very difficult because in order to deal with Nasser, a lot of times he's advised to kind of go for bat, uh, go to bat for Nasser on Capitol Hill, and he sort of drags his feet in doing that.
0: You know, that your really comprehensive answer there had so many fascinating nuggets. I mean, the first one about, you know, Gaddis's point about grand strategy. I mean, this is something that I've noticed again and again when, um, you know, people are writing and thinking about grand strategy that you know i think often people have this image that you know a new administration comes in a new president comes in all right how are we going to think about the world what do we want to accomplish how are we going to get there and then it just kind of stays like that right that's the framework and you know, the means and the ends are, are, are static, right? But as you rightfully point out, they're not, right? Like things come up all of the time, things that you're not going to expect, like, I don't know, a war or a pandemic or, you know, any number of crises. And, you know, you have to change tack. You have to be flexible, right? Grand strategy has to shift as, you know, the international and the, and the military context around you shift. And, you know, that doesn't make grand strategy... Um, you know, a, a, a concept that doesn't make sense because, you know, it's constantly having to change. It's, you know, as Hal Brands talks about, right, it's providing that that um, intellectual framework for how you think about, uh, you know, American foreign policy. And, and I, th- I thought that was a really key point that you made there. Um, You know another one too that I thought was really interesting about Johnson and you know not wanting to go to bat for for Nasser on Capitol Hill because he's concerned he's going to use up political capital that he's really trying to um, keep very squarely focused on the Great Society and to a lesser extent Vietnam when he needs to. And this is a point that Fred Logevall makes when he writes about you know Johnson and you know his his um, decisions to escalate the Vietnam War is that. You know, it's kind of fascinating that for a for a man who wins an overwhelming victory in nineteen sixty four, right? Right, like I mentioned earlier, absolutely crushing Barry Goldwater, the Republican nominee, um, and and has a massive, massive congressional majority on Capitol Hill in both the House and the Senate, at least from from sixty four to sixty six, and even after the sixty six midterms, still has those majorities, right? You know, it's fascinating that the you know. The, the, you you think like there's this sort of right-wing Republican monster that's kind of, you know, scouring the halls of Capitol Hill, looking to, you know, destroy Johnson and his policies, right? But Johnson really in those first two years could have done whatever he wanted, you know, despite the fact that obviously you have, uh, you know, the conservative coalition and you have elements of the democratic party who, you know, are resisting him on certain things. You know, he has to contend with that, but Johnson, you know, in that first two years, is really at the peak of his power and, and it's really fascinating how in some ways he appreciates that but in some ways he doesn't which is even more fascinating given his long legislative career and you know how he was such a master of the senate as as robert caro called them in the you know the third volume of his uh of his biography so um i always just find that really interesting and so when you talked about those two things um you know that 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 came up in my head um you know you mentioned in. in Yeah, go ahead. If I can make a quick point, um, Nasser didn't make
1: things uh, easy for Johnson, though, uh, on Capitol Hill, and he didn't make things easy for himself. Um, One key event in the book um, is there's there's a raid on the um, uh, diplomatic compound, the American compound in Cairo, and uh, there's a mob, and they end up burning the Kennedy Library, at the diplomatic compound. And this relates to issues going uh, on in Congo, uh, where Nasser is involved in giving arm and aid to the rebels in the United States. is trying to get that to stop, and the, uh, the America gets uh, a little bit more involved, and Nasser gets a little bit more upset, and the suspicions of the... Uh, American officials on the ground and back in Washington is that Nasser allows a mob of Congolese students to be whipped up, uh, sort of led to the American diplomatic compounds and uh, burn this um, uh, library to the ground. And the ambassador, the American ambassador uh, in his, in his memos points out that he's walking You know, he gets, it's Thanksgiving when this happens and he gets word that this is happening and he manages to walk all the way from his apartment to the uh, embassy. And he sees all these Egyptian officials kind of like hanging out in the street in the fire trucks and they're not really like doing anything. They're not acting very quickly. And he manages to make it to the compound and through the crowd unscathed. And so it's their impression that, you know, Nasser allows this mob to happen he wants to send a message to the United States uh, about uh, Congo. And this obviously doesn't help the Johnson administration make an argument for giving aid to, uh, to Nasser. And this is one of many conflicts that happens in 64 and 65 uh, when Nasser starts to really... Uh, change his rhetoric about the United States and um, get angry about Johnson and say that Johnson doesn't care about him and the United States is putting pressure on him. He says that Johnson's letters are cold, even though they're still written by Comer. The person writing them <laughs> never changed. There's just the person behind it. And um, for Johnson to go up on Capitol Hill and to say, We've, we have to give aid to Nasser because, you know, he's burned down our library and who knows what else he'll do. Well, that doesn't sit well in Johnson's eyes. It doesn't sit well in a a lot of people's eyes. But Comer says, well, we've got to do it because we don't want bigger problems in the Middle East. And so that's also uh, a major factor contributing to Johnson's reluctance to really go to bat for Nasser. He sees it as a bribe and it just doesn't sit well with him.
0: So what, what's the congressional um, perspective, you know, such as there is one on, you know, Comer's initiatives here with, with Egypt and, and with Nasser specifically? I mean, I'm sort of getting the glimpses from previous answers that, um, you know, there a lot of people in Congress are really skeptical of this. But, you know, since they are the ones who ultimately have to approve these aid packages, how are they navigating um these administration's initiatives?
1: Uh, Well, they they make it very difficult. Um, When Nasser will give a speech, uh, you know, saying that there's, you know, pressure uh, or that uh, at one point he starts referring to uh, American bases in the Middle East as uh, imperialism um, and uh, that America, like Britain, Mm -hmm and it has grand designs in the Middle East and they use aid as pressure um, you know the response this this gets picked up by the newspapers um, and you as you said you know what these world leaders say you know not only should we pay attention to them but we should also pay attention to what the newspapers say um, a lot of times historians will will shy away from looking at the newspapers um, but public opinion plays a large role in how politicians deal with things. And when you look at the documents, I mean, people like Comer are aware of what public opinion is. And while it might not change how Comer views his ultimate strategic objective, it does shape how he thinks he can convince Johnson to publicly go about supporting Comer's ultimate objective. And so public opinion does play a role. And with Congress in particular, there's all sorts of amendments where you know, a, a congressman or senator will say, well, if you want to give aid, um, actually it starts out pretty generic. They say uh, any country who you know, says something you know, bad about uh, you know, American bases or something you know, should not be given aid. Um, they kind of keep it generic. I can't remember the exact wording of it right now; so it escapes my memory. But I remember it starts off very generic, and then as time goes on, they say, "Well, you can't give money to Egypt. You can't give any foreign aid to Egypt. Um, you know, anyone who burns a library or who, are, who anyone who burns diplomatic property can't be given aid." And it's very clear that this is aimed towards Egypt. And so there's a sort of tit for tat where Nasser will do something and Congress will kind of respond and Comer sort of spearheading the Johnson administration's response is sort of pivoting back and forth between trying to keep his Kennedy policy alive under Johnson, trying to convince Congress to back off and trying to convince Johnson to allow him to continue doing this. And so that's where my argument comes in that this policy was Intended to die as soon as Johnson came into office, but Comer tries to carry it on his back very successfully um, f- until Comer is uh, transferred out of that role and into a role uh, concerning the Vietnam War.
0: Yeah, so talk to us a little bit more about the transfer. When is Comer transferred to a, to a Vietnam portfolio? And as a result of that, what happens to um, all of his efforts um, to to repair and and rebuild and revitalize the, the U S Egypt relationship. Now we're sort of in the in the mid nineteen sixties here.
1: So uh, we're at sixty six. That's when Comer gets transferred. Um, he becomes so Bundy leaves. Bundy goes to the Ford Foundation, and um, uh, Comer becomes interim National Security Advisor. Uh, Bundy recommends to Johnson that he make Comer the uh, full-time national security advisor. Um, but I think Comer's seen as a little bit too much of a wild card for that role. Um, and uh, uh, Walt Rostow is, is brought in instead. Um, and Walt Rostow was, was, was taken out uh, of his a sort of deputy national security advisor role early on in the Kennedy administration, according to Comer, because... He was a little bit too academic in the way he approached um, foreign affairs. You know, he wants to study things. He wants to write lots of papers. And Comer basically said, let's stop writing so many papers and let's start doing big things. And uh, Kennedy uh, came to sort of see that view. And so, you know, Johnson sort of, when he brings Rostow on, it's a reversal of that. It brings the National Security Council a little bit more back to an advisory role. Comer makes it well Bundy, but you know Comer as well makes National Security Council a little bit more action-based, and Johnson bringing Rostow back in makes a little bit more back to, hey, here's what you could do, here's what you might want to do, not we're doing this and everyone's going to be dragged along. Um, so Comer's switched to a uh, a role in Vietnam it's very controversial, but in short, um, it's it's uh, about uh, peace building, making relationships uh, on the ground forcing relationships together uh, making political objectives go through in the face of all odds a role that he is perfect for that's why he's chosen for it um, he calls himself a gadfly uh, it, and you know, if you're familiar with that term basically means like you, gadflies are a real pain, they're a real nuisance uh, you know, just everywhere, getting on everything. And that's what Comer was referred to as. He refers to himself as a gadfly and others refer to him as a gadfly. When he wants something done, he will get it done. And that's where he got the nickname, uh, nickname Blowtorch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so Johnson, you know, things are going very badly in Vietnam. And so I think from Johnson's perspective, it's okay, let's set Comer loose. And like if he can make all these things happen with the Middle East, um, and don't get me wrong, Comer dealt with other issues besides the Middle East. But I just focus specifically on Nasser in the book. You know, Comer is also dealing with uh, India, for example. Um, but you know, they say let's let's have Comer deal with uh, Vietnam and let's see what he can accomplish for this administration. And so when Comer leaves, you've got the one person. Uh, you know. It, you have those people who think that if you take a day off from work, everything's going to fall apart. You know, Nothing's going to get filed in on time. Phone calls are going to go unanswered. Emails are going to go unanswered. Uh, and they go homesick or they go on vacation and things actually kind of do go on and it's okay. You can take a vacation. Well, in Comer's case, it turned out, you know, he really was holding things together. He really couldn't leave the scene because after he left the scene, the relationship that he was carrying on his back, in my view, completely falls apart. And without someone pushing for relations with Nasser, Johnson starts to ignore things. Rusk, who's put into a more influential role dealing with this stuff, ignores things. And so when Comer leaves, he's got this major victory. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, Congress wants to hold up aid to Nasser after the library burning. Um, and um, Comer is able to make it happen. He's able to make the aid happen. And the reason why he's able to make the aid happen is because it was part of a multi year aid agreement. Nasser was supposed to get aid from 1962 to 1965. And in 1966, there was going to be a new agreement. It was an th- original three year agreement, which is pretty unprecedented, and it was a huge amount of money. Again, it was to turn Nasser inwards, so he wouldn't be so focused on on um, uh, conflicts in the Middle East. And when he does things, you know, like the library burning and other issues, um, there's a question of whether he's going to receive all of the aid under the original package. Not only does Comer force it through and make it happen, even going up to Capitol Hill himself, uh, even writing letters to senators, sometimes uh, in Johnson's name saying, uh, you know, I need you to do X, Y, Z, or, you know, we've been empowered to do X, Y, Z. And at one point, Bundy says, don't you ever use the president's name like that again without checking of me first? I mean, that's, that's Comer. You know, he's going to do it and ask questions later. He's going to make things happen. He makes the aid happen. Nasser gets the rest of the aid under the original Kennedy agreement. Not only that, but Johnson or Comer convinces Johnson to do a short six-month new aid agreement in the first half of 1966 because he says otherwise Nasser is going to turn to the Soviets. And so... As that six-month agreement is expiring, that's when Comer leaves the picture. And Nasser's officials start coming to Johnson's new officials and say, hey, the six-month agreement is expiring. Are we gonna get a new one going? Can we talk about it? Um, And the response they get is, no, we can't. For one reason, Nasser keeps making speeches about Vietnam and criticizing Johnson's policies. You can't do that because Johnson won't give you foreign aid. Um, And uh, number two, there's congressional midterm elections coming up. So even more so, if if you criticize America in your speeches, then there's no way we can justify giving you more aid. And Congress certainly won't allow us to do it. And so things start to fester in the back half of 66. And Comer's replacements start to realize that a little bit too late, try to put things in front of Johnson and Rusk, encouraging giving some sort of aid to Johnson. And it it, it doesn't happen. Uh, the The last thing I can find is it's talked about at one of Johnson's Tuesday lunch meetings, uh, I think it was February of 1967. Uh, They finally get Johnson to sit down. Rostow is convinced to bring it in front of Johnson and to get him to do some sort of aid. And um, pretty shortly after that, Nasser gives a speech that is exceptionally scathing of the United States, really over the top, saying America's out to get Egypt. They're trying to starve Egypt uh and uh it's there's a big series of articles uh in a major egyptian newspaper calling uh america or describing america as having long sort of cobwebs of imperialism um and uh from there uh nasser starts to become even more critical of the united states in his rhetoric and it just reaches a fever pitch going all the way up until the outbreak of the 1967 war. And that's the dynamic that you have going into that war.
0: So, you know, in your view, there there's connections between the outbreak of the sixty seven war in the Middle East and, you know, sort of the um, collapse of, of the Comer initiatives and sort of the, the deterioration, once again, of the U.S.-Egypt relationship. Can you talk a little bit more about those connections? Yeah, um, I would say, there's
1: two controversial aspects of my book, two controversial arguments I could see that could spark a lot of debate. One, uh, how much was Comer really driving a pa- uh, uh, policy and, and how much is that just his perception? Uh, you know, I'm flipping through his documents. I'm seeing what he's trying to get accomplished. I'm looking at what gets accomplished, putting pieces together. Um, and there's a question of, how much is Comer making this happen? Uh, how much is it other factors? And, you know, it just happens to work. The second is, I strongly believe that the collapse of U.S.-Egypt relations right before the outbreak of the 1967 war is the major uh, cause of the 1967 war. I'm not. I'm not sure... That there would have been a war had it not, and that's controversial because the war is not conceptualized in that way. The war is conceptualized in the initial historiography. Uh, the war is, 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 is conceptualized as uh, you know an Egyptian threat to uh, Israel. Uh, as the historiography goes on, it's it's flipped. That narrative is actually flipped and it's conceptualized as uh, Israel is, is, is creating tensions and trying to bait Nasser, trying to bait Syria. And it's using all these events as a pretext uh, in order to you know, grab land, grab power. Uh, and that narrative is, is sort of where the predominant narrative is today. But in all of the histori- historiography that I read, uh, and you know, I read all the way up until uh, 2017. I mean, I was reading the historiography as I was working on the on the Comer stuff. Um, up until very recently, with probably the most recent one or two books, no one really looks at this dynamic of U.S. Egypt relations. And the main reason why I think it's so pivotal, not that Nasser was jealous of the US-Israel relationship. I mean, that's definitely a factor. Nasser is very much uh, concerned about the US-Israel relationship. Again, like I said, Kennedy wants to keep a friendship with everyone. Johnson is convinced to do the same thing, although he's not sure that that's possible. And uh, events happen during the Johnson administration where a complex arms agreement is reached where uh, the United States finds itself fulfilling a contract for uh, tanks uh, to Israel that were left unfulfilled by West Germany. And Nasser's really upset about that. But the Americans point out to him, well, you know, you're getting weapons from the Soviets. We're actually trying to create a balance here. And so there's definitely an aspect where, where Nasser is, is, is starting to feel like the United States is favoring Israel and ignoring him more. And when the aid agreements are allowed to expire in 66 and new talks fester and completely die in 67, he feels even more that that's the case. Um, my view is that he uses Israel as a symbol in order to reveal for the United States their worst nightmare, the symbolism of a major conflict in the Middle East where the United States is forced to choose sides. My view is that Nasser felt that if push comes to shove and there is a war, that um, – the United States might be forced to choose between Nasser uh, and the United States, or sorry, Nasser and Israel. And that's what happens uh, leading up to the war. Um, I wanted to read something if I can real quick. Um, There's a, a, a letter, a message that I found uh, right before June 5th, right before the war broke out. And this, this message amazed me because here's what uh, Nasser said. Uh, this is the message from Nasser. Quote, now is the time when all Arab people are waiting to see an act of friendship on the part of the USA. His urgent request is that the U.S. undertake no direct military action in the form of landings, shifting of naval fleets or otherwise. Nasser assured that the UAR had no intention of fighting. What they are doing is returning to the 1956 frontier. He assured that this matter would soon be terminated without any fighting. He informed that his current actions were intended only to prove to the Arab world that Saudi Arabia and Jordan are false friends and that the Arabs would follow Nasser, who is their friends. And this is where it gets really important. He also wishes to prove that President Johnson is impartial as between the Arabs and Israel and that he will not take any sides in the present war of nerves. If President Johnson can grant Nasser's request, he can be assured that Nasser will place his entire services at Johnson's disposal. And this was sent really, really shortly before the fighting broke out. And that signified to me that Nasser engineered uh, this conflict in order to force Johnson's hands to finally choose between Nasser and everyone else and to finally deal with Nasser. And that fits into the narrative because it's understood that Israel begins the actual fighting and it begins it with a with a preemptive strike, the question people have is they say, well, Nasser didn't want a war. And my answer is, that might be true. He might not have wanted a war and that his objective was to get Johnson to uh, pay attention to him. And all of the rhetoric that I found where Nasser is giving speeches and Egyptian newspapers are saying, we address the threat to Israel, No, we actually address it to the United States, there's no other reason for that than sending a message to Johnson. And tragically, Johnson realizes this and sets up a task force for trying to deal with it, but it's it's too late. Um, And obviously, the war changes uh, the landscape of the Middle East. And so I really consider my book uh, a prequel an origin story for the 1967 Arab-Israeli War on this long-overlooked factor of U.S.-Egypt uh, uh, relations falling apart.
0: As, as we're coming to the end of our conversation, I was wondering if you could zoom out a little bit and, and tell us what this story um, you know, can elucidate about the limits of personal diplomacy, which you know, is, is part of the, the, sub, the, the subheader of your book. About what happens when you know really um, important uh, policy is really being spearheaded by one individual or you know perhaps a small team of individuals, and and when those people move on, how that can impact the policy. I mean, what can we really glean about personal diplomacy as a as a method for accomplishing foreign policy victories? What can we glean about its um, its, uh, you know, ability to to be successful, especially when you have a lot of presidents, including our current one, Joe Biden, who, you know, have a lot of faith in their personal diplomatic abilities and think that, you know, if they can get in front of world leaders who the United States is having problems with, for example, China, um, that this can solve uh, a lot of issues that, you know, perhaps are more structural in nature. And I think time and again, we see that that doesn't really work out exactly the way that they think it will. So what can we really get or glean from personal diplomacy here um, from the story that you tell about Robert Comer and, and U.S.-Egypt uh, relations?
1: Well, it's, it's definitely the main uh, theme of the book. Um, I actually wanted to call the book A Tragedy of Diplomacy um, because, uh, you know, the entire relationship falls apart. Uh, I open up with a, a vignette. I open up with a story where Egyptian officials reach out to their US counterparts and they say, you know, uh, US officials say, hey, we're gonna be doing this uh, with with Israel. We're gonna be selling Israel these uh, missiles. We really want you to know. And they feel like they've got a real open uh, communicative relationship. They feel like this personal diplomacy thing might really be working. um, And that there's a sort of communication between the two states. Um and then you end with with you know Nasser threatening the United States and Johnson really upset and everyone isolated and in war and- I think what diplomacy what personal diplomacy I think what I' from this book is um it it works um i I tried to keep my views out of the book as much as possible um a uh, uh, one sort of former government official read my book, and he said, "I, I disagree with your thesis." Uh, and this was a person, person who was in the position to make uh, major decisions. Uh, and he said, "I, I disagree. Uh, I disagree that that you think that um, you know personal diplomacy works. I disagree." that you can deal with a leader like Nasser, uh, a difficult leader, and that you can get them to um, uh, uh, be flexible and to see your side of things, that you need a little bit more stick than carrot. Carrots don't uh, necessarily work, but from all the evidence that you put in the book, I'm able to make that argument. In other words, he could see that I might be leaning towards one argument, but the book Laid everything out. I really tried to kind of put out everything Comer was saying and doing without coloring it. I really wanted it to be a little bit more encyclopedic. And he thought that from reading the book, personal diplomacy was a disaster and that it should never be done. But I actually think that personal diplomacy is pretty successful. And the fact that uh, Comer, at several points of the book, with all odds against him, is able to get Nasser to see, I mean, he gets Nasser to agree to not lambast the United States for giving tanks to Israel, which is like a major achievement. Uh, He gets Nasser to agree because he's communicative with Nasser. They they, they, They communicate, they let him know what's going on. Nasser says, okay, I'm not happy about it but I'm glad that we're talking and you're not hiding it from me. I did kind of already know about it, so I'm glad that you didn't try to hide it. And so you can see that personal diplomacy does work and you can see that as soon as Johnson stops showing that he cares, that it falls apart, but that also shows the limits of personal diplomacy when the subtitle comes in. Uh, In a democracy like the United States, personal diplomacy uh, has a shelf life. You know, and that self-life uh, is typically the president. Um, and my most recent example I can think of, I mean, I was I was very critical of uh, Donald Trump's foreign policy. Um, but the one thing, and I think I might have been alone in this camp, but the one thing that I that I thought actually had merit was his approach to North Korea. I didn't think that the United States really had anything to lose from striking up that personal relationship. And if, if Trump felt like he was able to steer things through that personal relationship, that reminded me a lot of uh, Comer and, and, and Kennedy's approach to Nasser and the success that they felt that they could have. Um, and the limitations of that are, of course, presidency is no more than eight years, uh, and it can be as short as four years. And when the president leaves, if you have a personal relationship, it's, it's hard to continue that. So you can't base everything off of that. Um, so it's, it's useful, but it has a shelf life. And the difficulty is, and I'm not sure I have an answer is, you know, wh- what do you do after the transition? If you don't have someone like Comer who's committed to making it work, you know, I'm not sure you know what you can do. Joe Biden's not going to have that same type of relationship, you know, as, as, as Trump did. And, you know, obviously leaders have different approaches to foreign policy, which makes it difficult to form a, um, a personal connection.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place uh, to leave it. So uh, the book is U.S. Egypt Diplomacy Under Johnson. Uh, it was uh, published uh, as a paperback uh, in August 2022. It originally came out in, in 2021. Uh, it's available now. Highly recommended for if you really want to get into the weeds on, on a lot of these issues. Uh, Gabriel, thanks so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me
1: on.